0: Welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Jens Nelson.
1: I'm Lucas Stock.
0: And this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Thank you for joining us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. Welcome uh one and all, welcome new, welcome old. Uh we're here with an exciting end to our heresy month 2023. Um if you're new here, each each October Lucas and I do a little thing that we like to call heresy month. Um you know, October is typically spooky season, you know, it's Halloween. This year we happened to have a ring of fire um like eclipse. We had a Friday the 13th. There was just some, you know, extra spooky things. Very um good. and yeah, and and just over the years, we we've we've taken time each week uh, to focus on a particular heresy from church history, whether that be Arianism. Um, I'm blanking on any other heresy. Uh, Pelagianism um, and and others. You can go back and find them. Uh, but we're ending this month a little bit different uh, than we have in the past. I think uh, historically, we actually have read the ninety five Theses, which has been fun, but we can't just do that every year. Um, and so we we're blessed to have a guest with us, as you probably saw in the title of this episode. Um, we're joined by Trevin Wax, and we're we're talking about his book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. Um, and so Trevin had reached out uh, uh, several months ago, I guess, at this point to to say um, that he enjoyed our show and that he, he uh, was releasing this book and we were interested in reading it and having him on. And so many months later after reading and discussing, um, we're here to sort of chat about all things orthodoxy. And so it's uh, in a way, I think, providential that we end a month talking about heresy with an episode on orthodoxy. Um, so we can talk all month about bad teaching and um, errant teaching and and heresy, um, but let's let's end this month. To, uh, w- when this drops, it will be uh, October 31st, which is Reformation Day. And so let's sort of celebrate this, this day and this season with a conversation on orthodoxy. So without any further ado, I'm going to do an introduction here of Trevin in case you are unfamiliar with him or his work, and then we'll just jump right in. So uh, Trevin Wax is the vice president of research and resource development at the North American Mission Board, and he is a visiting professor of theology at Cedarville University. He's a former missionary to Romania, and he's a regular columnist at the Gospel Coalition. Um, he has also served as the general editor of the Gospel Project and has taught courses on mission and ministry at Wheaton College. He's the author of several books, including The Multidirectional. Uh, leader, rethink yourself, and gospel-centered teaching. I personally, Trevin, have had many uh, connections to you over the years, whether it be through the Gospel Project, the Gospel Coalition, the podcast you do with the Brandon Smith. That was one of the first podcasts I ever like got into when, when I sort of discovered podcasts were a thing. Um, so it's it's an honor and a privilege to have you here.
2: It's great to be here. I've been listening for a long time and appreciate the work you guys do, so it's an honor to be on.
0: Well, thank you. Um, As I said, today we're going to be discussing Trevin's recently published book, uh, which is called The Thrill of Orthodoxy. The the subtitle, if you will, is Rediscovering the Adventure of Christian Faith. Um, Before we begin officially, um, I'm already going off script. Um, It was... I realized we 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 came to a conclusion that Trevin and I are both big Beatles fans, um, and so I want to put Trevin on the spot and I want to ask you, Trevin. If, maybe you don't have a favorite song, but do you at least have a favorite album from the Beatles? If you were going to name either a song or an album or both, that is just like everyone should listen to it. Everyone should own it. Something to that effect.
2: Oh, that's so hard. Um, I I like. How do you even? How do you? I don't know, man. That's really tough. I I would, I guess. Like if you want like the Beatles in the in between phase of early to to later, you go with Rubber Soul because then you get you both but you get like the blend of old Beatles and new Beatles, sort of the transition that takes place right around that time. But I mean, it would have to be Abbey Road for me. Yeah. Like if I had one album, I was just that I I had to have. I think it would. Yeah, I think it would pick Abbey Road.
0: I think I would agree. I, I actually also agree with your assessment about Rubber Soul. They're I'm I'm waiting for the um the remaster. They've been doing this like remaster yes. series. For I can't the last wait. Decade. And I'm I'm I was hoping it was going to be this year, but there's been like no announcement. So it's like, is it going to happen before Christmas?
2: And Revolver sounded so good when it they did the remaster. It's like each Incredible. of the remasters is really great. Really yep. great.
0: Agreed. Well, again, sorry to put you on the spot, but I thought that'd be kind of fun just to break the ice a little bit. Uh, so now to get to the questions we have about your work in particular here on orthodoxy. Um, as I mentioned, we on this podcast, we're wrapping up heresy month 2023. We've spent the last four weeks talking about four different heresies. Um, these are, you know, problematic teachings. And I will say they're not all actually like condemned and labeled as heresies. Some of them are just like bad teaching, errant teaching, problematic teaching. And so as we've done that we we've we've spent the month doing so um it's it's fitting that we now end talking about orthodoxy. So um we've talked a lot about heresy so now we're asking you what is orthodoxy? Why does it matter? Um in your words, what do you what do you think on that?
2: This is one of the hardest this is one of the difficult questions that I had to deal with in writing a book because you can't write a book called the thrill of orthodoxy and not define orthodoxy at the beginning. And then the, the way you define orthodoxy is you're immediately going to tick some people off at some level you're either going to be way too broad as a reformational protestant like I am or you're going to be too uh narrow in that you're you know you're 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 cutting people out that may actually be be orthodox. So the way the way I did it for the book and I think we could talk small orthodoxy in when it comes to different parts of the Christian tree so to speak or different traditions within Christianity but we're talking about the trinitarian bedrock of the faith. This is like the tri the trinitarian core that all wings of the church agree on it's what has been believed everywhere always by all is the the, the way that we talk about it uh chuck colson called it the faith thomas odin calls it classic christianity c.s lewis calls it mere christianity jd greer would call it essential christianity whatever like whatever you want to call it it's like this is like all branches like the eastern wing of the church eastern orthodoxy roman catholicism and protestantism evangelical process everyone agrees like this is core uh, and it's it really summed up in the 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 three ecumenical creeds that are that are seen as as, as all-encompassing: the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the the Nicene Creed. Of course, uh, still recited by Christians all over the world today. So, uh, for the purposes of this book, I was like, let's let's just really drill down and focus on you know orthodoxy in in the the form that you know everyone would 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 agree to now you're going to get eye rolls from people in different at different branches of the tree because you know they're going to be catholics that look at that and be like well what do you mean by one baptism and what do we mean by that you know as you start to like parse out what some of the elements of the creed the the way that they these beliefs are fleshed out in the lives of in the lives of actual churches and in communities and what it how it affects worship and and all of that so so I realized that that is just an element of it. But for the, for the sake of this book, I was trying to do what Chesterton does in Orthodoxy from, you know, more than a century ago now. And he, when he wrote that classic work of uh, apologetic slash autobiography in a sense that where, where he's, he's talking about the, the fundamental truths of Christianity that all Christians virtually everywhere are going to ascribe to.
0: And, uh, related to that the the subtitle of your book as i said a little bit ago is rediscovering the adventure of christian faith uh if you if you heard our introduction or if 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 listeners have been around our podcast for a while they know that we like this imagery of of the road to emmaus we talk about it quite a bit um it, it has sort of helped guide us as we have grown and developed this podcast to recognize that like lucas and i are two disciples in a way on a road on a journey um, that happens to be the Christian faith, and so I think there might be even some parallels to be drawn here. But but what do you mean, uh, and can you elaborate on what your idea of the Christian faith being an adventure? How is it adventurous? Um, how how would you say that?
2: Yeah, there's there's really two two ways of looking at this. I mean, one is I, I in, in juxtaposing and putting together thrill and orthodoxy in the same title. I was trying to to sort of awaken the idea that orthodoxy like to lead us away from the idea that this is dense and dull and, and, you know, just impractical and doesn't really have anything to do with life to show that, no, they're actually, we're talking about the God of the universe here. So if, if there, if there's debates and discussions about what orthodoxy is and if they're they're thrilling, it's because we're actually talking a real, we're we're talking about the encounter with the living God. (laughs) This is burning bush, God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, now revealed to us, and Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So so it, not some generic deity out there, you know, or a, a you know, ground of our being kind of stuff, but like actual, like uh, the, the personal nature of, of actually coming to know this God who has revealed himself. So uh, because thrill and orthodoxy go together, then adventure and faith ought to go together because it is an adventure to come to know this God better, and it is an adventure to seek to walk according to what he has revealed to us. And, and and what has been passed down to us to to guard the good deposit, to want to pass on the the deposit of faith to 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 be on this journey of becoming more and more like Christ. so there's a sense in which that's happening to us in our sanctification, our growing in our christ likeness on this journey toward glorification, but it's also it, it's also part of the the part of the adventure is in recognizing that 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 not everything that we're supposed to, do or even believe has been laid out exactly. I mean, when you think about it, the creeds are kind of sparse and bare. So there's a sense in which you've got the essentials that you need, and you have this 2,000 years of church history to to walk in behind. But I, I like to, to talk about church history being, it's not really a map. It's more like a treasure box. Like You don't immediately get the map for exactly what you ought to do and the way you ought to think about every particular situation that might come up or ethical scenario that you might face or new challenge that appears on the horizon but you do have in 2000 years of church history a treasure box you have examples you have people who met the challenges of their day you can learn from their both their failures and their successes you have you have everything you need in scripture and we now have this this beautiful you know line of bungling believers sinners and saints that lead us to where we are today so so that's what I mean by adventure. Like we're not the first ones to encounter challenges. We have new challenges that arise and it's our moment. Like this is our time to meet those moment, to meet those challenges with uh with with the scriptures and and with the the resources that the church has given us.
0: Sure. You know that's interesting. And I, I do have to imagine like m- most maybe not most, but many people, many people that are, are in churches, I think if they heard the word orthodoxy, they might think that 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 sounds dry, that does sound stuffy that they might be able to vaguely define it, but maybe not really get like a a good definition. Um, But as Lucas and I have done this podcast, um, again, hearkening back to that idea of the road to Emmaus, um, being two disciples we're, were two people from different traditions, even Lucas being Anglican, myself being a Baptist, we have differences. We have divergent opinions, sometimes on like great things like the sacraments, maybe. And then other times on just like are aliens real (laughs) Um, like, you know, anywhere in between on that spectrum. Um, And so I think for for your for your average churchgoer who might be sitting in a pew and, and hearing a word like like orthodoxy, thrill, adventure, and wondering how like a, a faith that can, to, to those on the outside of the church, I imagine those who aren't in the pew, the people on the outside of the church look in and they see like dry, boring, stuffy, or they might see people trying to put on a show to make, um, you know, to, to light up the stage and have a modern uh, worship band and all that. Um, But how... I think sometimes we can get sort of lost in that. We get lost in the the setup, in the arrangement, in the even trying to to reach people that we forget that yes, we have this faith that that's two thousand years old. That um, that is an adventure. That is this this beautiful journey. This long obedience in the same direction. Idea to to sort of use Eugene Peterson. Um, but, but one thing that, that that came up, like, as I was reading this, like, obviously, I'm somebody who's like, yes, orthodoxy, we want to have good and, and solid teaching, we don't want to be teaching errant things. Um, I think naturally, uh, there are going to be many, many opinions, beliefs, um, even divisions within churches. Um, and so I think you, you touch on this a little bit in the book, you, you discuss matters of like first importance, um, matters of second importance, you talk about indifferent things. Um, I've heard it pronounced different ways, but this idea of audiophora is like the Greek word um, for these things indifferent, as they pertain to Christian orthodoxy. So if we want to say like the Trinity, that's like you can't really you can't really go anywhere on the Trinity. If you do, you're a heretic. Um, But then you can talk about other things like like baptism. Should we baptize infants? Should we not? And then there are other things like should how should your church governance happen? You know, deacons, elders, all those sorts of things. So. In our world today, again, where there's so many divergent uh, opinions and beliefs, how how can we determine where something falls on a I don't know if it's a scale, if it's a some other metaphor, but how how can we think about all these diverging opinions even within like let's just say Baptist um, circles? Like how can we talk about orthodoxy when it seems like sometimes we can't make up our mind on on one thing or the other?
2: Yeah, this is um I, I can't remember the the name of that or exactly how that phrase goes, but like in essentials, unity, in non essentials, I can't remember what that one is. And then all and then in everything charity or whatever. That I mean that that's a great statement. The problem is that that this is where it gets tricky is people don't agree or what are the essentials versus the non essentials. So like that's really the the question that has to be be raised. Um I think there's two ways. That or I think there are two things that we need to look at when we talk about essentials versus non-essentials, and the way that we are able to kind of figure out what tier things go in is we've got to be connected to the church throughout history and the church around the world. So you need the global church around you and you need the church behind you, um, because basically that's how you're going to be able to tell. Okay, what what are places where there has been disagreement, division uh, in in the church? um but the church has you know different different churches have had sometimes sharp debates and disagreements over things and yet you could still see this connection back to the the triune core of uh, uh the trinitarian core of the faith um the, I, there's a couple of people that have, i think have done really good work on this um ryan putman has a book called when doctrine divides that's just excellent on this question um, Gavin Ortland, of course, finding the right hills to die on is really good at, at kind of ex- examining uh, how you can kind of tell which, you know, is this an essential or non-essential just because something is non-essential doesn't mean it's not important. So like the baptism question is super important. I mean, obviously it's important. Like that's, I, I get along better with someone who, 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 uh, uh sprinkles infants than I do and, and says it really matters then for someone who's just like ah you know it's not a it's not a big deal, uh, just believe what you want to believe. Like I, I mean I think you and Lucas, uh, the, the two of you actually are embody that. Like you, you think that these matters are really important enough to where they would keep you from the same congregation on a Sunday morning, not in visiting sense, but just in like belonging to a congregation, um, because these things really they they really are important. But at the same time there is a there still is, and and I think that this is one of the beautiful things about orthodoxy is that there still is among all the division in the church. There still is a striking unity when you think about it. Like I and and I know I I know there's like the common I, I've heard it so many times. This common sort of complained about you know oh you Protestants are so divided and. You know, look like how many splinter groups there are and whatnot and i'm like i read enough in like catholic circles to know they're as divided as protestants it's just there's this outward facade of unity like you can see it all behind it's just like at least for the protestants like the mess is already like it's like all out on the table right like all the little tributaries and splinters like we can kind of see it and and there's a sense in which yeah i think we should want and desire a more formal unity i think there's that 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 I mean, Jesus prays so hard for this, Paul wants this. So, like to not to not desire this is to go against the heart of the savior, I think, at some level. And at the at the same time, I also think the unity of the church is, I mean, we when we say we believe in one holy apostolic church, we 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 believe in one holy, we we believe in in, in a holy small C Catholic church already. Like it is there. It is is the, the unity visible in the way that we probably would like it to be? No. But we believe that that we believe that that exists. And so it's really leaning into something that's already there and, and seeking to, to, uh, uh, to, to, to press further into that rather than trying to create a a unity uh, that isn't there. So, uh, but yeah, this is the issue. I mean, like what exactly constitutes first order and second order issues. And, and this is why I said earlier, Jen's like, when we were talking about, um, you know, you do have small O orthodoxies in different traditions, you know, like if, if you as a Baptist preacher, you know, make a case that you need to, to begin to, to, to sprinkle infants or you go against dinner at church membership or something to that effect, like I'd be like, well, you're not, you're not really a Baptist anymore. So you know what I mean? Like it's, you, you're not, we're, no one would be saying like, you've lost your salvation, but they'd be saying like, that, that's, that's like, that's a matter of Baptist quote unquote Baptist Orthodoxy. Just like with Anglicanism, you know, if you were to be like, you know, I think we all ought to be Congregationalists and they get the final say, Okay, but you're not an Anglican anymore at that point, you know what I mean? like it's it's you're, it's not that you're saying that a Congregationalist is is a heretic. You're just saying a Congregationalist is a Congregationalist. Like some of these categories that have grown up there, I think to have respect for your brothers and sisters who are in a different place, means acknowledging these categories and not papering over them or in, in some sense i think
1: all like all that's super helpful especially for people who haven't read the book yet um you should first of all but also to to keep these ideas of what orthodoxy is in what sense um the word adventure is you know what what that's supposed to conjure up but also to think through like these kinds of questions about uh, things that that, that might, might be a little bit more um, heady at times, questions over, you know, sacramental theology or whatever, but are also very, very not practical in as if heady questions of theology are not practical, but practical in the sense of boots on the ground concrete, well, what do you do on a Sunday morning when somebody is getting baptized or fill in the blank with whatever particular question you you, you might have? And I think it's really helpful. And I think this is also a, a good like this next question is kind of going back to the idea of adventure and thrill as well as kind of um, tying, I think, a little bit springboarding off of this idea of so how do you get down to business, so to speak, of. Figuring out this adventure using these uh, these treasures that have been passed down to us to uh, chart the continue the 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 task of charting the path forward um, as we can, as the church continues to march towards um, Christ's return and that that for me the question is is um, what you've done it seems to me when I when I heard the title and then as I was getting into the book is um you're making an argument for Christian orthodoxy, defined in this classical Trinitarian sense. And but your argument is, to my mind at least, it seems, that you're making an aesthetic argument as opposed to some kind of um you know purely intellectual or logical argument. You're not trying to, you know, present me with this pile of data and then convince me that this data bears the interpretation that classical Christian orthodoxy is the you know the best way forward for the church or something like that. Which nothing wrong with you know plenty of books do that that are that are done well and, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But that's not what you're doing here. And I'm curious if if this was something that sort of you fell into and it, you know was more adventurous that you happened upon this or um, what what made you initially or as it developed in your mind, what made you think in terms of thrill, adventure, uh, journey, treasure, these sorts of aesthetic categories where as you're reading the book, you, those who haven't read the book, you, you really get the sense as you're going along that what Trevin is trying to do is rouse you up to join him on this path, right? He's not trying to convince you that he's on this really cool adventure but he's just kind of trying to take your hand and be like hey look at this and and it sound it might sound kind of kind of like what i'm saying doesn't make sense but but i, I don't know how else to explain it because because it's aesthetic it's not it's not uh, propositional as much in the sense of here's why you should believe this but he's saying look at this amazing landscape that we have so i'm curious once again how did you land there and do you think that that kind of approach is, um, is, is maybe what we need in our culture, you know, in, in the West, in the 21st century, um, or, or in a generational context, maybe? Um, where do you see that kind of argument fitting into the, the broader needs of the church today as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think every generation needs to have its sort of it it every generation needs the reminder, hey, doctrine really matters. Like doctrine, like the Christian faith, what we've received, what the the deposit, you know, like this, like we're not playing around here. This is really important and it matters. And and especially in a in an overly pragmatic age where everything is immediately cashed out in terms of practical value uh it can be really easy to just sort of assume certain beliefs but they not really affect our day-to-day lives or even our worship like what we're actually doing together and saying and singing on a Sunday morning and so and so i think every i think every generation needs that reminder that hey some of this is life or death like these are really if 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 the Bible is true, if what the Bible is actually teaching is true, and if Christianity is 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 true about the true story of the world, then then like this is a big deal. So so I'm kind of coming to with that in the background first, saying okay, this really matters. Getting this right really matters. Even stuff that doesn't seem immediately practical, the downstream effects of that really matter for the church, for the health of the church, for the life of the world. So that's kind of behind. That's that's the adventure part, right? Like that's like we're you know the, the the hobbits on their way to mortar, Like we're on a journey. That like there really is a Sauron, you know. Um, so this, this is the, if that's if that's happening, then I think the 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 next question is okay. So how do you make the case in your generation that this really matters? And there there are really good books I think that make the, the case for this is what the Bible teaches. This is why it matters. This is why you should believe this. This is like laying out the evidence of this is what who has taught this. This is how it's come down to us. How like I've benefited from those books. Um, that that is one way of approaching this. Kind of doing the 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 persuading in that way of trying to convince someone of the truth and why it matters for me. And I think one of the things that that resonates with you know sort of the, my generation and the generation coming up is more of the question. It's less the question is Christianity true. It's more the question of is Christianity good, and is it beautiful, and and so what I wanted to do with the the, the doctrinal questions and and to 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 if I'm making a case for doctrine, then I want to make a case. I want to make it in a way that is is inviting people into this conversation that's been going on for two thousand years and explain like I I want to be like the kid who is talking to other kids in the closet of a castle, trying to get them to come out of the cellar and explore the whole castle. Like, because I feel like a lot of times we kind of get into our little rut of this is just, you know, Christianity is just about going to heaven when you die. And did I trust Jesus? Am I just, am I trying to live my life good? I'm just going to worship him week to week and not realizing, you know, like that's like one little aspect of the, this, massive castle that we've inherited with all of these grounds and these different places to explore. And it's under fire from the world. It's also on offense in a sense, if we change the metaphor, like we're actually charging the gates of hell. So you've got this like this mission in this, in this sense. And for me, I want to be the, I think the way to get people out of the cellar into the castle is to say, is to tell people about the castle and to to explain why it's so amazing how it adorns the gospel like i think that's i think i think that's more persuasive and compelling to get people into the great tradition conversation than to simply say hey you may- better make sure you check off all of the right doctrines because this is you know you got to believe this because the bible teaches it and if you don't it's bad for you i'd i'd ra- all of that's true but i'd rather say yeah but you should also this is amazing guys like this is amazing And if there's anything i can do to stimulate the interest in it and to help people get a little taste for how amazing it is then maybe my book is an appetizer to a feast that's coming for some people that's that's my hope
1: yeah i think i think of like just how thrilling it is to to get a glimpse of how broad the tradition is for um, the possibility for what it means to be truly human um, in Christ, and 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 how hard it is to see that if we are in, like you say, those ruts, which which is such a human tendency um, and 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 limits us so much. But along along that line, and this is this is very much a me question. Um, so someone could read your book listen listen to to conversations like this and say yeah you're absolutely right um i i i want to come into the castle i want to join this adventure i've caught the 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 thrill that this world of that we call christianity has for me um and what I have found in my further reading and and prayer and reflection and conversation and study and so on um, is that um, where I where I have been reared in the faith is not a place that uh, has this thrill of orthodoxy is not a place that um, has actually, kept the full deposit of of the faith not in a sense of you know there are some kind of false religion, but just um, too narrow strictures on what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be Orthodox. And so um, as an example for those who have read the book or have seen this um, before um, in in you include it as an appendix there's um, I want to make sure I get the name right is it is it reforming Catholic? Confession. the reforming Catholic
2: confession yeah that's yeah. a reformational that they came out in 2017 I think with a 500th anniversary I think Kevin right. Van Hooser and Timothy George were the ones who spearheaded that yeah I love that so it's, a,
1: it's it's a great example of um, going way back to the beginning of this conversation what you were talking about with the core like what what are these creedal um, core affirmations that you must make within your you know, umbrella of orthodoxy, in, in terms of defining it, what it means to be orthodox. Um, but like, I I also think it's a good example of the potential um, critique or, or or question of I'm reading this, and it seems it seems like I I want I, this impulse is what I'm feeling, right? This impulse that this confession is reflecting. Um, and also that just the broader impulse of getting on with this adventure. Um, but it seems to me as I'm walking down this adventure that I need to sort of, in order to go on that adventure, I need to leave the walls that I was born in because maybe I have come to this belief that, I, you know, I wasn't living in the castle in the cellar. I was living in like the, the you know, the gardener's hut or something. And it's not that I'm not part of the fiefdom or whatever. I don't want to get. I don't know enough about feudalism to make this metaphor work. But, but basically, um, if like this is a, this is an autobiographical question. Evangelical Protestantism doesn't seem to have the thrill of orthodoxy, and catching that thrill could, for somebody listening, seem to be pointing them out of evangelicalism, of, of, of mainstream evangelical American Protestantism, into something more quote-unquote historic in the sense of just having a longer pedigree. We might think of Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, um, or those Protestant communions that have more explicitly attempted to maintain, you know, like the church structure from Pre, uh, prior to the Reformation, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, and I'm curious, like, if somebody had such an impulse, what what would that response be that you would want to give to them to help them think through what it means to be um, Orthodox, and you know, if they're concerned with with feeling like, well, does that, you know. Where does that lead me in ter- terms of my churchmanship? In terms of my um, my membership of this beautiful, thrilling, holy Catholic and, and apostolic church? I don't know if that makes sense or if I'm sort of just rambling. But um, no, I, it's a I, great question. I'd love to hear your your thoughts, even just 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 spitballing.
2: Well, I think I think you got to. I mean, obviously, there's a pastoral approach to everybody that you, to, I mean, every person's patriot is different. So I'm not, I wouldn't want to like make a hard and fast, like this is what you should do or shouldn't do, you know, not knowing particular situations. But um, I I do think that in generally speaking, in in most evangelical Protestant contexts, even where we say there's not the thrill of orthodoxy, you generally will find people in every in every communion and every tradition that that do have that thrill of orthodoxy and that do want to be rooted into something in something very deep and want to claim the treasures of of church history and the uh, the scriptures going way back, um, there is that long line of of saints. And so, the first thing I would say is just, um, if you're in a particular house in the neighborhood and there's another house in the neighborhood you feel like gets the thrill of orthodoxy better than yours does, what I would suggest would be take whatever you need from the other houses and bring them back as treasures to your own home and see and, and do whatever you can. It, moving is very stressful as anybody who's ever moved knows what I'm talking about. Uh, and it could be that God calls you to move. Uh, you know, you become convinced that another tradition actually is right about something Then you, then you, you want, but I like, I, I I take it for example, like my, you know, I have particular convictions, obviously that are reformational, that are evangelical and that are Baptistic. Um, I, those convictions prohibit me or they keep me, they prevent me from, uh, but from, from being in a, in a close ecclesial communion with some other denominations that I have benefited from immensely. Like my, you know, my daily office, my Psalms in 30 days and my life of Jesus in 30 days, the two, you know, books that I, how I pray is a a lot of it's pulled from the book of common prayer and it's structured in that way. Like there are treasures. And I, I, I think even with all the disunity in the church today, that God has graced us with particular gifts in different traditions, and that the the the, the church, small C Catholic, benefits from all of the, the 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 back and forth that comes from from these different traditions. So my my suggestion would be to not let your thrill of orthodoxy and your discovering the the riches of church history and whatnot drive you away from the local congregation which at least gave you the deposit of faith enough that you're reading a book like the thrill of orthodoxy like this is these are the people who showed jesus to you who with all their failures and flaws loved you into the kingdom so it it, just like you know people have talked about how you know some people when they discover calvinism page stage you need to put them in a cage for a while until they can kind of grow up and be more mature or whatever and actually not like make, you know, there's also great tradition cage stage stuff that I think we get just have to recognize is a thing. It's out there. Like you suddenly you discover Athanasius and you feel like your grandpa's Christianity was deficient somehow because he didn't know that story, you know, or something like, it's just, that's real. And I think, but that's, that's just immaturity no matter where you are. I think the, the more, the more mature, the more settled way is to say, Hey, all of church history, like we we get it all. Like I don't I I don't feel a tug or a pull to the Roman Catholic Church because I benefit from Francis of Assisi or Aquinas or Augustine. Like those are mine too. Like that's my heritage. Like it's not like the, you know, like you I trace back through Reformation, like it's not like the Reformers were, you know. In reinvented the the faith. It's like they were, you know, actually seeking to renew the church through this way. So like I I feel like I've got this, you know, I've got the same treasures that that others do. And I mean, frankly, it's funny to me that the appeal, I think, for some is, oh, let me let let me go to a to let maybe I should jump ship from a more low church to a more high church in some way, or to a, a group that's got you know a. A pedigree, or they've got the, you know, a succession, you know, whatever it might be. To me, I just say, um, the some of the groups that are get marketed as Catholic are actually smaller than evangelicals. They're not as Catholic as evangelicals are, Um, in in the actual in, in the actual way when you're actually looking at what. Some of the claims are are being made in in some of these, and and there's also, I mean, we we talk a lot about the great tradition. We talk about tradition. There also there also are traditions that can, instead of adorn the gospel, wind up obscuring the gospel at some level. Or because you know, C. S. Lewis and Tolkien would have you know the debates back and forth about Catholicism versus Protestantism. And uh, you know, I think Lewis in his essay on Christian reunion talks about he goes, you know, you Catholics think that we Protestants are we basically are. Dying of thirst in the desert with the gospel. Well, we look at you and we think you're you. You smothered the gospel in a jungle, basically. Um, like there, and and I think that's just such an apt metaphor for like the the back and forth between some of these communions. Uh, the, there is a difference between you know going to another house in the neighborhood of Protestantism and going to Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, such that we actually do use the word conversion in both. Cases those who convert from Catholicism into Protestantism or vice versa, which shows that there are significant differences here. There really are, and there are a lot, there are particular things, and at least in my view, there are particular things that are being requested or added to the deposit of the faith that I just look at and think, don't you're you're, you know, like that that I have to believe the bodily assumption of Mary, you know, uh, or the immaculate conception, or the you know papal infallibility at the danger of anathema, you know, like, that I'm like, that's, you're, you're adding to the deposit is, is serious. And so, so I've got convictional reasons for why I'm, where I'm at. And I would, I would want to walk someone through some of the things to say, if you're, if you're attracted to some elements of what you see in Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism or a different Protestant denomination, before you decide to make a move, you know, to move across the neighborhood or to move, you know, Across the country, in some cases, um, what what can you bring from that tradition to enrich your own? Like, how can you deepen the roots of the tradition God has placed you in? It, God has planted you in a particular field, and unless it's super super clear that He wants to move you, why not instead benefit from the gifts of other homes in the neighborhood, other other plants in the ecosystem, and like and 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 bring that back to your to your field that God has put you in.
1: Yeah I think an element of what you said that's so helpful too and 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 ties in with stuff you said earlier about the practicality of these questions is this focus on your actual house right cuz cuz there's the there's the convictional doctrinal theological questions that shouldn't but can be done purely on paper you know you 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 could you know do all of that divorced from your actual living community but at the end of the day like you you said earlier like sure you might be part of a church that's got a lot of issues or is missing some things that are good or whatever but they made you a christian they 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 fostered your faith they fed your faith and so to to redirect that attention of of like well the reason you would the reason you feel that tug is because you care and what does it mean to care about the church? Well, it means to, you know, what did Jesus tell Peter? Feed my sheep. What did, you know, like, what does Paul tell us to do? Serve each other with our gifts. And and so to, what's the word, like, to, No, well, not crystalline, but like to make it more tangible, I think is such a helpful way of framing any question, not just that, you know, one of, of like, oh, what about going over there or over there, but also any other theological question of like, you don't have to make it practical. You don't have to make it tangible or affect real life, but to recognize, like, God has planted you somewhere, and there might be there there are cases, not might be, there are cases where you need to you need to get out, or a reformation needs to happen, or so or some, something, you know. Um, but you know, those are generally speaking, it's safe to say, pretty extreme cases. At least they're in, they're in the minority in terms of. You know, not everyone's called to have 95 feces or whatever. And I think it's so helpful. Like I had I had a, a, a buddy of mine who's a priest said um, something to the effect of, of like grow where God has planted you, right? Like instead of always being like, oh, what about over there? That looks good. That looks good. You know, the grass always looks greener. It's never greener. Nobody is less divided than anybody else uh, when you get into it, even if it looks that way. Grow in Christ, closer to Christ, and and how can you do that better? Like you're saying, you can you can actually grow with the 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 blessings that come from people in those other communions, even if that doesn't require yourself, you know, being transplanted to somewhere far away or whatever. I think that's really helpful um, to just. Remind us of the priorities. I think really, uh, I think I think that's that's super helpful.
2: Well, it's a consumerist. We live in a consumeristic society, so I think it's really important that we just recognize there are there are particular tendencies that are not going to be driven by conviction as much as going to be can be be driven by brand and by badge. Mm. And I think I think that, you know, I think I think we just have to recognize those are tendencies that we're going to going to feel. And we live in a society where, you know, it's a religious marketplace at some level of, of a pluralistic marketplace. And so my, I'm not saying that there won't be occasions where you may need to leave a church and go to another church, or you may need to leave a denomination that that, certainly that is uh, uh, a possibility. I'm just trying to resist the consumeristic impulse that I think is so prevalent in our day so so that I would, if I'm going to inculcate an instinct in people listening to this podcast. I would say it's grow where you're planted. If God transplants you, great. Make sure it's God transplanting you, not you know, the cool kids are over here or this is what I'm, you know, or or I'm I, I I'm 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 driven by something other than, you know, love for God's people and for what I can do to build up the body the the larger body of Christ.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's helpful, and it's interesting. I I've been thinking a lot lately about history, obviously in particular church history, um, but dwelling on this idea uh, that we are products of our environment. That's not a, a radical idea. I think most people would be like, yeah, you're you're shaped, you're molded by your parents, by your school, by your family, you know, brothers, sisters, relatives, all that. You're you're a product of your environment. And yesterday or the day prior at work, which is unrelated from ministry or the church entirely, um, we were having this conversation um, just, just very randomly. Um, we, we, were, we were talking about this idea of like, um, uh, what was the word? Um, like being content being one of the words, um, it's escaping me. But the, the point being like, even the way that we think about our relation to our work, like I work a job and I think about how I relate to it. I think about like what makes me happy, what makes me angry, am I satisfied, am I content, et cetera, et cetera. 500 years ago, the people living in that time, in that place did not even think in the same framework, in the same concepts They're their work was much more tethered to the reality of just like existence you know you 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 worked quote unquote worked to like feed your family to like quite literally feed your family like you were probably harvesting and cultivating crops or at least you were trading in a marketplace to to get stuff from people who were doing so so it's just like a different society different time different place that's obviously just history right but when we when we think about that and translate that to the church and, and these two final questions, as we sort of begin to wrap up a little bit, these, these two final questions sort of deviate a little bit from your book specifically, um, but, but we felt like just given that it's been heresy month, given that Lucas and I like to talk about ch- church history and theology and sometimes heresy, and obviously today orthodoxy, um, we we sometimes have this ability. We we can look back down the tunnel of time. We have that great fortune of two thousand years. You know, not everybody had that. Martin Luther had his fifteen hundred years. Aquinas had his a thousand or whatever. Like, we all have the 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 hindsight is twenty twenty thing. Um, we can we can look back down the tunnel of time. We can see bad teaching. We can see errant teaching. We can see heresy even, and something that has just been rolling around through my mind especially this heresy month that we're wrapping up is this this idea of what what motivates bad teaching what motivates somebody obviously like in the 200s the 300s like The motivation was like they were just trying to understand the church and their faith and in relation to like we've only had a very short chunk of time and people didn't quite figure out the nuance of the trinity yet so like let's figure it out um so like it makes sense that like arianism and pelagianism and all those other early heresies it makes sense how those formed and how they were combated and uh labeled as heresy um, but the, my my question has to deal more with, like, when those teachings continue, when we continue, like, Lucas and I last week just talked about oneness Pentecostals, um, this idea of a, a denomination within Pentecostalism that is so hyper focused on oneness of the Godhead, there is no triune God, God is one, um, you know, citing the Shema. So it's like this idea of like, Man, i thought we've like figured out the trinity i thought we figured out nicene trinitarianism so like what what is the in, in your estimation if you have one like what what motivates this what is it that motivates and it doesn't even have to be like out outright rank heresy but like what motivates bad teaching like how do we get to a point where like a teaching has become so popular that it is like that it's up for public debate I mean i know we also live in an era with like social media where i think we just have much more awareness of things again 500 years ago luther could only be aware of like what people were writing about and talking about in his town and then people that may have written him letters or something he didn't have like instant snap access to whatever is happening in israel right now um and so again to reiterate the question where does that come from is it is it the obviously the sin of our heart, but is there a motivation that you've identified in your years of studying theology, studying the church, talking about orthodoxy? Like, what is it about? Is there a common thread? Is there a trend? What are your thoughts?
2: Yeah. I, you know, I don't think you can, I don't think you can reduce it to one motivation. I think there are multiple things going on depending on, on what it is we're talking about. So, um, <laughs> excuse me. Um, So it's interesting. The church fathers really do, they really do attribute a lot of heretical teaching to to uh, to immorality. It's it's fascinating to what like to pride and to sins. Like they 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 really there's not this divorce from moral and morality and sort of belief in some of the church father or the way that they connect it. So I, I'm challenged by that. At times they do that a little bit more than I think they should. But I'm challenged by that because I wonder if we do that enough. If there actually is a pride or a sense of you know superiority that comes out in in heresy, especially when um, a heresy has been corrected by the church and yet people are are wanting to persist in it. Uh, I think there can be good motivations that can lead to to I it, It's it's ironic to me. I write about this in the book, but that heresy hunters often are the most prone to falling for heresy because, because they're so concerned to safeguard one particular thing if they think is so important, like for example, the oneness of God, that they wind up losing orthodoxy. Or they lose. They they have a tunnel vision that loses the bigger picture. So it can actually, you know, and I think Pelagius initially. Thought well, there's moral laxity among the church, and we got to fix this. And the way that we fix this is by, you know, making some adjustments to how we've been thinking about sin and freedom. And you know, I mean, basically, it makes total sense. That Pelagius taught what he taught, looking at the situation, he was trying to meet the, the 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 moment, and. Thought this is you know this these adjustments and alterations to the or the way we're going to teach the Christian faith is we're going to do it this way. Um, I do think I think there's also I think that's one er there can be a good motivation that then leads to a really bad outcome. There's always the motivation of we've got to get rid of what embarrasses us. So I mean Marcion has this from the beginning. You know the embarrassment of the Old Testament the 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 um, the prejudice toward the Jews. You've got the you, you see this a century ago with those who wanted to deny miracles, you know, we're just too sophisticated for that. And, you know, like we're this idea that the way we're going to save Christianity is by, you know, uh, uh, downplaying at least or, or denying the supernatural because we live in a scientific age. And I think you see that even now as some of the anthropological heresies that have arisen that give rise to, you know, uh, 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 radically different understandings of the human person, male and female, what marriage is, whatnot. It's not, it's not that the the marriage question is heresy, orthodoxy, but there it's, that's the surface presenting issue of an anthropological heresy that's underneath that. So, so I think, but, but I think that some of that is the desire to, you know, to be in step, to save Christianity from itself, because it's not going to survive unless we get on board with this or that or whatnot. So I just think there's lots of things going on depending on heresy it can be a good motivation that just becomes too narrow it can be a um it can it can be a pride and superiority motivation it can be embarrassment as well and i think we got to recognize that all of these can be at play at at different at different times um and and have been throughout throughout church history
0: yeah no that's really helpful and and this maybe was said already um but the idea even of like um like safeguards almost like guardrails um, are more or less what can help guide us. Cause what I'm what I'm thinking of as, as a response to what you just said, I'm thinking of ideas like always reforming, or I think about, you know the the work that, that Martin Luther did. And again, his motivation wasn't necessarily like I'm gonna start a new church or a new thing. It was meant to like, let's reform the ways in which we've gone astray and let's get back to the heart. So maybe my follow-up question to what you've just said is like how then, um, especially in those instances of, of good motivations of like where, where someone was motivated to, to, to try to seek change. And it ended up being a problem. Like in what ways can we today look at something and think, yes, like that does need to change. That needs to be different. We need to get back to our roots or or whatever it might be. What can some, what are meaningful things that someone can do to ensure that like they're staying within the guardrails, um, And that they're not going off course while also recognizing everything we've just said about how there is like there's Baptist and there's Anglican and there's Presbyterian. And and there's these different like it's all flowing from the same source, but there's just slight variance or deviation. Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is I could look at my brother Lucas here and be like, dude, you're just like so wrong on on all these things. We need to change this. And I could see that like being you know, my intentions are good. I care about Lucas. I care about his salvation, but maybe I take it to some extreme that I end up like fracturing myself and splintering off into some other like problematic error. Um, So do you have like thoughts on that? Like what, what are things you can do to help ensure um, this, this, this path towards orthodoxy, but also recognizing the variance and the, you know, the first matters, the second, uh, the matters of first and second and things indifferent. how all that sort of coalesces.
2: Well, I think every faith tradition has to have the conversation as to okay, what's first, second, and third for us in in terms of the 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 way we the weight we give to particular doctrines. It's not that these doctrines aren't important, but the weight we give them and the weight you're gonna give them in a particular faith tradition, you will be having conversations about reforming and always reforming. I mean, I I actually think it's a reformational principle to 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 want to have Lord's Supper every Sunday. I mean, it was the it was the Catholic Church that was withholding community from the laity communion from the laity. That is not the tradition. I'm doing an interim pastorate right now at a at a Baptist church, and we have communion every other Sunday, and I am loving it because it is not common in most Baptist churches. Um, and so, but so, but I would I would love to see that. I think that is a New Testament practice that has a long pedigree in church history. That is not the norm for. Most Baptists, because they have a generally have more of an anti-sacramental understanding of the supper anyway. Um, that I would love to see recovered. So as I can, as I, you know, press into that, I'm pressing that, but I'm not doing so as a way of saying, oh, this other tradition has it right, let's copy them. I really am more of of a of saying, this is our roots. Like what, what like we we got. We've, we've actually got a. Uh, if I go back into church history, I can bring this out to say, if we're going to reform again, the word is form. We're returning to a form, and if I find something that where we sort of have not not done, you know, what what some of our forefathers and mothers in the faith have done, and I have something to go back to to say, this is something we should retrieve, and here's why. But the other thing that I have to keep me in the guardrails, I think, instead of splintering off or going off into whatever direction is I've got, we've got to be in conversation with the church around the world. Like this is, and this is one of the benefits we have now being in such connection with so many other believers of uh, be, being in connection and in conversation with churches and Christians in vastly different cultural environments helps us maintain an emphasis on what is essential and to see what's not essential pretty well. Uh, When I think about like the documents that come out of like the Lausanne Congress for world evangelization, for example, like the Cape town commitment or the like, it's not that you have to agree with every single thing in those documents, but they're a treasure trove of like, this is like, this is the core of what it means to be on mission. This is what we believe about the gospel. This is how this, you know, and so you, you think about the, um, the, the the worldwide Christian uh, faith and Believers in vastly different cultural settings and how they're seeking to maintain and preserve and promote orthodoxy and I think that That's one of the ways you can keep the guardrails in place to when you're seeking to reform. You're not actually moving beyond Application for a new day and age, but you're actually moving toward altering the faith once for all delivered to the saints or some way like that guardrail of the global church and having the church throughout history you know, in, in conversation. I think those are the two ways that we are able to come to the scriptures and be able to read them alongside, you know, brothers and sisters who have the Holy Spirit.
0: Nice. That's good. Um, well, Lucas, do you have any other final thoughts? Do you have other questions that have, that have come up in this conversation? I, I think it's been, it's been good. I mean, it, it, It feels like it fits really well. Again, wrapping up a month on heresy, it feels like it fits really well with the, the things we care about on this podcast, you know, ideas of like retrieval and recovering the faith. And especially for those of us who maybe were in more low church traditions growing up to find something that feels like this is a thrill. This is an adventure. It's not just the faith of my parents, but this is like something I can grasp onto. Like I... I was so excited to get this book. I was very excited to read it, and so I'm. It's just been awesome to chat about it.
1: Yeah, no, I don't have any other questions. Um, I do have our little our little outro, but before I do that, I want to give you Trevin the last real word of, of the conversation. I know that I agree with everything you just said, James. I've really thoroughly loved um, this conversation. Love your work, and and have really benefited and appreciate it. Benefited from and appreciate it. Um, but yeah, what, is there anything else you want to close out with in terms of just sort of putting a bow on this conversation? Not that these conversations don't continue, but just for our time here tonight or whenever you're listening. (laughs) And, um, and also if you want to add in where people can follow your work, if they, um, like what they heard tonight, again, whenever you're listening and want to, um, uh, listen more, read more, or anything like that, where they can interact with you and follow you. Uh, anything else you'd like to share with with those who are who are tuning into this episode?
2: Sure, I'm I'm really easy to 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 find. Just Trevanwax.com will take you to the, the column I've got at the Gospel Coalition, and I've got a podcast called Reconstructing Faith that's more documentary style, narrative driven. That we're in a we're doing a second season right now, so that's something too that people may be interested in. Uh, as far as just anything that comes to mind, and in, in in thinking through the conversation we've just had, I think it would surprise people thirty or forty years ago that you know two twenty-somethings have this podcast and are having these conversations about the riches of church history. Because if you look at evangelicalism in the eighties and nineties, um. Uh, be, these really weren't the the main topics on uh, of of conversation. It was more about innovation. It was how do we reach people. It was and and I think I think what the fact that this podcast exists and that you guys are doing what you're doing, and the fact that I've got a book called The Thrill of Orthodoxy, you know, like what in the world, like that what that kind of book I don't think would have made sense twenty years ago, but I think I think what's happening is the cultural winds are blowing. And we live in a, we have blown up all the paths culturally, like the, the typical paths, the markers of like how we, it, that, that lead to a certain kind of significance. And because the paths are gone, people feel really lost. And they also feel really shallow and not rooted. And the winds are blowing really strong. And trees are snapping all over the place. So I think the reason why you guys have the the interest you have you serve the people listening to this podcast. The reason that we're all in this conversation together is because we recognize we, we need deep roots. Like we, we need to be rooted in something and we don't want to just be the newest thing, the flashiest thing. It's gotta be something that's, there's a, there's an appeal to the ancient that is uh, a good thing, I think. And so no, just as I reflect on this conversation, I think, yeah, I just don't know that our conversation that we just had would have made sense to church leaders thirty years ago, but it totally makes sense right now when you think about the cultural moment we're in. And I hope that that is going to bring a lot of life. I think this multiplied out in fifteen years, this sort of impulse among younger evangelicals is i'm I'm praying will bring a lot of fruit in life as we seek to be faithful and pass the pass the treasure on to our kids and grandkids,
0: yeah, that's a good point. and i I mean, I'm like, very humbled and i think i think most people would do well to think about how the things that they do impact future generations i think we're often so we're, we're fixated on the the here and the now and what's happening to us today that we can lose sight of what's 10 15 20 500 years down the road and i think like just to real quick harken back to even the idea of heresy if if the if the heretics of history had like for a moment sat down and actually were able to somehow have the the foresight of like how is my teaching going to impact the church for the the coming hundreds and hundreds of years like maybe they would have thought a little bit harder not done some of the things that they've done who, who who knows but i think we would all do well to have that sort of self-reflection of like okay how are my actions going to inform uh, future generations that's that's really good um I did have one final question again, off script um, but we we like to ask all of our guests um L- Lucas and I love to read we we read lots of books, and so we're always very curious to hear Trevin, what are you reading? Do you have a book that you're particularly enjoying or maybe one in the past you know six to twelve months
2: oh yeah man i'm i'm that's a hard question uh, i'm I'm reading all the time um <laughs> yeah, like my hobby is reading reading and writing about reading. Um, uh, yeah, I, a couple of books come to mind. I think uh, I just finished Wonder, Confronts Certainty by Gary Saul Morson, which is basically this book about Russian literature. It's from a guy who's taught Russian literature for decades and it's like his life's work. It's like it's capstone. And he's basically entertaining all of the most foundational questions about human life through the the questions raised and the solutions on offer in Russian literature, going all the way back to Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, and then even Solzhenitsyn and Chekhov and others. And so, and I'm I'm a fan of big Russian novels, so I I've uh, I've read a bunch of those over the years. And so that, but yeah, the it, it's a book I worked my way slowly through. Um, there's another one that I'm working my way slowly through too, called A Web of Our Own Making. It's by a I think it's a German philosopher. Um, I can't remember his name, but it's, it's, it's about, it's about the way that we're reconceiving of humanity because of our sort of because of the digital revolution. And it's, it's, it's dense and it's thick and it's philosophical, but it's been really, it's been really good. So yeah, the, those are the two that come to mind that I think when I think of the ones that are like paying dividends in my thinking and like leading to me, like write and think about stuff more deeply, those are the books that come to mind.
1: Yeah, that's awesome.
2: This has been great.
1: We don't want to keep keep you too long. Obviously, um, we're all busy, but but you especially are extremely busy. So we really appreciate um, just your willingness. Let alone the sacrifice of of time and energy to to sit down and and sit down digitally and, and chat with us and record it. Um, and we also want to thank everyone for tuning in who listened to this episode or any episode of the Doxology Podcast. Um, check out um, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. Buy a copy. Read it. Um, I assume it's probably available on Kindle, too, if that's your thing. Read, read it however you want to read it, uh, but you should read it, as well as other stuff that Trevin has written uh, slash recorded that you should check out, so be sure to do that. You can also find us at Doxology Podcast. Uh, on social medias uh, or shoot us an email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com we'd love feedback, questions ideas for future episodes all of that kind of stuff we'd love to hear from you and until next time we'll see you and once again Trevin thank you so much for your time
2: thanks for having me guys, great to be with you